Let's bow our heads with me one more time as we go to the Lord to ask His blessing on the public preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are ignorant of all things concerning You and Your Son and Your Spirit and Your Word unless You reveal to us, unless You teach us what You mean by what You have said in Your Word. So, Lord, we pray now, incline our hearts to Your testimonies. Remove all of our distractions, preoccupations. Open our minds, open our hearts, open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in Your Word. Unite our hearts together. Make us of one mind, together as a congregation, what we hear and what it means and how we ought to obey it. And Lord, we pray, would you satisfy our hearts afresh this morning with the meat and milk of your word. May we taste and see that you are good. Pour out your spirit on us now, we pray, to understand and receive your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. I gotta admit, I am not crazy about doing what I'm not good at. I don't like doing what I'm not good at. Sadly, that means that there are a lot of things that I don't like doing. (laughs) I don't like being confronted with the reality of my own incompetence. It's not just I don't like feeling incompetent. It's that I don't like realizing that I am incompetent. One of you has given me the sage and very welcome advice, well, don't do what you don't do. (laughs) If you don't do that, don't do it. If you don't do drywall, then don't be your own mud and tape guy. If you don't do plumbing, call somebody who does. That makes me feel a lot better about my life. But it does not make me more competent. It also doesn't eliminate all that still needs to get done. Ecclesiastes 1 confronts us all with our own incompetence to make life what we know it ought to be. It doesn't take long to see that life in this world is bent out of shape. Our knee-jerk impulse, though, is often to just get to work fixing what's bent. But pretty soon we run into a brick wall. We run up against our own incompetence at managing and fixing life. The world has a way of puncturing and slowly or quickly deflating our idealism. And the more wisdom we gather from life, the less idealistic we can be. Of course, we don't want to go to the opposite extreme and let the perfect become the enemy of the good. 
But from the experience of the preacher in Ecclesiastes, wisdom shows that idealism is empty because only Christ can restore reality. That's the point of our sermon this morning from Ecclesiastes 1, 12 to 18. If you want to turn there in your Bibles with me, Ecclesiastes 1, 12 to 18. Wisdom shows that idealism is empty because only Christ can restore reality. Let's read the text and then we'll think together on it. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So wisdom shows that idealism, trying to perfect things in this world, in whatever way you try, wisdom shows that idealism is empty because only Christ can restore reality. So first, the preacher makes the point in chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. He observes in... A modern way of saying it, reality bites. Reality bites. It's not all it's cracked up to be. It hurts to live in this world. The king's conclusion from his comprehensive search is reality bites. It stinks. It hurts. It works against us. It fights against us. He introduces himself in verses 12 to 13 like any other ancient Near Eastern king might introduce or memorialize himself in inscriptions. This is how ancient kings left their mark in the ancient world. They would inscribe their name and their accomplishments over their tomb or over some public building. It was formulaic. I, King X was king over Y in city Z. And I devoted myself to A, B, and C. I accomplished D, E, and F, and everybody loved me for doing G, H, and I. That's just how you did it. Here, though, the preacher uses that same formula to subvert what you would expect to hear from that formula. He's undermining it. You expect self-flattery and self-promotion and self-praise, a whole list of 
accolades and accomplishments, how important the king was and his significance for all the people he led and what he did for them and how he left the cupboard full for them and not empty. What you get instead is the total opposite of that. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. I tried my best. But instead of a list of accomplishments and accolades, instead of a list of enemies vanquished and problems solved and innovations made, we get it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Here's the wisest king of the united Israelite kingdom reigning in Jerusalem. He lives across the street from the temple, God's house. He's God's authorized king. That's how the preacher is talking. The Pentateuch is his charter and constitution. The Book of the Covenant is the platform that's going to guide his policy. He sets out as a theistic idealist. I'm going to make sense of all this. With the law as our rule and Proverbs as our teacher and mentor, let's gather Israel's best and brightest and build something special. Let's apply all of it from the top down with all the power and authority of a redeemed state and the Bible as our creed and constitution. He applied himself and his political authority to figure out the riddle of life. He's diligent. He tried as hard as he could. I gave my heart, devoted myself to seek and search out. He's sincere. He's put his whole heart into this. He had the best of intentions, he meant well, and he intended to be comprehensive. All that is done under heaven. He used skill, wisdom, observation, science, technique. And he wants to ask, what makes this world tick? Let's follow the science and figure it all out. Isn't that why God put us here in the first place? How can we live in harmony with the world? How do we live with the grain and not against the grain? Let's problem solve. Let's reverse engineer. Let's build a society that can make this world a better place. Let's lead humanity to be and do better from the top down. Let's see all we can accomplish when a righteous ruler rules with godly wisdom according to God's word. What does he find? It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Well, that's a downer. Feels a little defeatist, especially for Resurrection Sunday. Who picked this text anyway? What is this unhappy business, and what can it possibly have to do with the resurrection of Jesus? What's the task of searching out by wisdom all that's done? It's carrying out the cultural mandate in a fallen, sin-bitten world. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. That's humanity's job description, and it was great until we sinned. And then that task became troublesome, tedious. We had to start sweating it out, and it became confusing. 
God cursed the earth. God did that. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. God said that to Adam after he sinned. And so reality no longer cooperates with us as it did with Adam before the fall. It bites back because we bit the hand that fed us. Again and again, the punishment fits the crime. What's more, our own ability to understand God and His reality was seriously damaged by our sin. The way we think got really messed up. The way we see the world got really messed up. And so the way that we see how the world is messed up also got messed up. So reality really does bite, but our perspective on reality is also hazed over by our sin and our ability to impose humane order on the world has been seriously hampered. God's not going to let us get away with rebelling against Him. He insists, I am still king, and you are only sub-king. I'm not going to let your experiment work of ruling this world out from under my rule. That's not going to be easy for you. I will see to that. And it all goes together there in verses 14 and 15. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. There's a senselessness to the kinds of things that now happen in a fallen, sin-bitten world. And there's also a helplessness that we feel and experience to do anything about that. And it feels absurd to us that we cannot fix so much of the senselessness that we see in the world when we know that God has made this world and given us the task of subduing it. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted That's part of what he means, that all things are vanity or senselessness and a striving after wind. I look at my task in the world and I think, (laughs) there's more that I don't know than there is that I do know. And what I do know, I don't seem to be able to do anything about in order to really fix it forever. We can see the bentness of things that happen in this world. We see things that, that's not right, that shouldn't have happened, that shouldn't be like that. Because we know what's straight from conscience. God has implanted in us an ability to know right and wrong. And though we suppress that ability and knowledge, and though it's seriously hampered by the fall, it's still there. Because we know what's crooked when we see it. Because we know the difference between straight and crooked. 
People and events are bent out of shape, and we at least have a sense of what it would look like if they were straight. But when we go to straighten things out, events, circumstances, relationships, policies, our emotions, our feelings, our inclinations, our will, our sins, we fail to fix it all the way. And then we ourselves get bent out of shape because we cannot straighten what's bent out of shape in life. And to make matters worse, we see this crookedness everywhere we look. It's not just out there. It's in here, and it's in here. It's political, it's economic, it's social, it's personal, relational, circumstantial, spiritual, even ecclesial. Now, it's not that everything we do is a waste of time. It's not fatalism. But it is that everything that happens is tainted with this bentness, this imperfection, something that doesn't make sense if everything were straight as we know it should be. So there's an impossibility to fixing all the way what we find in the world, and that frustrates us. The story of the whole Old Testament is right here in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. That's the story of the whole Old Testament. It's the story of Israel. It's the story of man's inability to straighten out what is crooked in the world because of our sins. Adam could not straighten out Cain. Humanity could not build their own tower to heaven. Israel could not straighten themselves out in the wilderness. The judges and kings couldn't even do it in the promised land, and neither could the prophets. We run up against the givenness of reality. All reality. And your personal reality. That you and I cannot change. There is even a givenness to the imperfection of your reality. To the bentness of your own life. Your lot in life. Bentness that you cannot change no matter how hard you try. That thing you wish had not ever happened. Now we want to believe that reality is whatever we make of it. I will determine what is real for me. I will decide who I will be, what I will be, how I will be. I will impose my own will and meaning on reality. I will decide what reality is. But that's not, that, that's not true. You might be able to do that to a certain extent or maybe fool yourself into the idea that you are doing it. But you won't be able to think about it for very long and be able to maintain that position for yourself. We did not decide whether or not we would ever be born in the first place. You did not tell your parents, I would like to be conceived now. That was given to you. 
We did not decide what family we would be born into or where on the globe we would like to live. I did not put in a demand to reality. I must be born in the wealthy West. I would like to be born in Australia. I would like to be born with an English accent. We're not not in control of those things. We didn't decide whether we would be biologically male or female at birth. That was a given of our reality. We didn't decide whether we would be the oldest or youngest born among our siblings or what skills would most come most naturally to us in order to create our earning potential. We are not in control of reality. Reality is given. The most basic, fundamental parts of my reality and your reality are given, not chosen. We did not create them as we please. We found them as they are. Now, of course, you can still get the girl, get the job, get the friend group, get the victory. You can get vindication. You could even get revenge. There are things you can do. You can even get the abortion or the divorce or the gender reassignment surgery. You can do things. You can make meaningful choices. What you cannot do is fix what is broken in reality by doing those things. Either your reality or other people's reality or reality in general. There's a bentness in reality and some bentness in your life that you cannot straighten out. Again, we're not saying you don't have moral agency. You do things. You do make morally meaningful choices and decisions that sometimes do affect other things. What the writer is saying here is not fatalism. Nothing you ever do matters. So throw in the towel. What he's saying is you can't fix it. Whatever that it is, whatever you're thinking about right now that you wish weren't the way it is in your life, whatever's bent, you can't fix it all the way. You might ameliorate, you might soften the effects of it. You can't fix it all the way. Why? Because God's the one who bent it. That's why. And the preacher says as much later in chapter 7, 13, what God, what God has made crooked, who can make straight? That's a rhetorical question. He's not asking you to answer that. (laughs) He's telling you, you can't straighten what God bent. And this is not just the preacher's own kind of thought-up, original reflections. This is the teaching of all of Scripture, Job 12, 14. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. 
If he shuts a man in, none can open. Isaiah 14, 27, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? Another rhetorical question. His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? No one. Jeremiah 13, 23, even about ourselves and our sinfulness. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You frustrated you can't change your spouse? You can't change yourself. We can't even change our own sinful hearts and habits for ourselves, much less the world and how it works. You see, there's a, there's a bentness, there's a disappointment, a sorrow, a confusion in your life, and you have to come to grips with that. You can't keep ignoring it. And you can't keep ignoring how you feel about it and how you think about it and how you think about God because of it. Everyone has one or two or three or more of these things in their lives. All you got to do is live long enough. And you'll feel, man, that's bent. And I don't like it. And it hurts. And it's confusing. And it's frustrating because you don't feel like you can do anything about it. And you feel like you know what it would look like to be straight. But you don't, you don't have the power to unbend it. And God is the one who put it there. Thomas Boston, the old Puritan pastor, identifies the crookedness in our personal lives as some adversity that has ongoing effects in a very sensitive part of our hearts and lives. He wrote a book on this, on Ecclesiastes 7.13, called The Crook in the Lot. Not the thief, but the crookedness in your lot in life. And here's what he says. That crookedness, it often falls in the tender part. I mean, the part of the lot in life wherein we are least able to bear it. Or at least think so. If there be any one part of the lot in life in which of all others a person is disposed to nestle, to just kind of snuggle in to that part of your life that you feel so good about and so wonderful and so comforted by, the thorn will readily be laid there, especially if he belongs to God. In that thing wherein he is least of all able to be touched, he will be sure to be pressed There the trial will be taken of him. Why? Why is that? For there is the grand competition with Christ. You're snuggling in there and not in him. And Christ wants you to snuggle into him and not that thing that he gave you, not that person, not that love, not that ability, not that dream. It falls on that which of all things most rivals God. You lost the job. 
or the ministry or the public reputation. You lost the friend or the spouse or the child. The cancer came back. The temptation, the darkness came back after you were converted. Your life got seriously bent out of shape. And now you struggle with your attitude being bent out of shape. The thing you most wanted to keep, God took away. And the thing you most want him to take away, he has left. And there's nothing you can do about the situation or about the sorrow and confusion and pain that you feel about it. It lingers in you. It aches in you. It frustrates you. It aggravates you. And at times, it makes it hard to face other people in the world and you just want to crawl into a hole. (laughs) Why won't you take it away? I've asked you over and over and over. You know how I feel about that. And you act like you don't care. This is not how you saw your life going. This is not the kind of pain you wanted to live the rest of your life with. Why did that happen? Why, what did it mean? And sometimes you don't just want to cry out to God. You want to cry out against Him. Because this makes no sense at all. But listen to our pastor, Thomas Boston, again from Beyond the Grave. Uh, May not he who made and fashioned us without our advice be allowed to make our lot in life too? Without asking our mind, but that we must rise up against him on account of the crook, the crookedness made in it. Hey, he created you without your advice. And can't he create your lot in life too without you complaining and criticizing him and questioning him? What does this speak? This is going to be hard to hear. What does this speak but that the proud creature cannot endure God's work nor digest what he has done? I know that's hard to hear, but he's right about us. We cannot digest what God has done in our lives. We cannot digest the dark providences that he has left. We cannot digest what he has done in our lives or what we feel like he has done to our lives. Isn't that the point of Ecclesiastes here? The Bible undercuts every form of human idealism especially that form of idealism that takes the form of your dream for your life, what you think it ought to look like. It shatters our attempted utopias, both political and personal, secular, or even religious. It confronts us with reality as it is, not as we would have shaped it if only we had enough power.
Now, we might think that Kohelet would teach that if you maximize your wisdom, it will be easier to cope. I mean, this is a wisdom book. He's the one who is gathering all this wisdom, and he must be setting himself up to extol the virtues of having just enough wisdom. Just get more of it, and then you'll see. Then it'll work. Then you'll understand. Then it'll all work out, and you'll be laying in a bed of roses. But he makes the opposite point in verses 16 to 18. This is the second part of the sermon. Wisdom makes it worse. Wisdom makes it worse. Yeah, that's not where we saw this going in our minds, is it? Kohelet has now discovered that even the diligent search for wisdom and its application is an unhappy business. Now he says in verses 16 to 18 that with all the surpassing wisdom he has, he's going to try to apply it. He's tried to figure out the exact differences and borders now between wisdom and foolishness, case by case, and more broadly. He's acquired a great quantity of wisdom, greater than anybody before him. Now he's going to try to apply it at a granular level to make fine distinctions between wisdom and foolishness so that he can understand, okay, what's the difference? Okay, let's figure it out. I'm going to double down, and maybe that'll be satisfying, but it's not. In fact, he says in verse 18, the more wisdom he has, the more confusion he sees around him and in his own heart. In much wisdom, there is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, vexation there is not just confusion. When he says, I'm, you know, vexation has increased, it's not just, oh, I don't understand, I don't get it. Can you help me explain, what's, what's this math problem here that's just kind of this objective thing over here that doesn't really have anything to do with my life? I'm not really sad about not being able to figure out the math problem. I just need help so I can get a better grade on the test. That's not what he's saying. It's frustration. You see there, it's parallel to sorrow. And the Greek version of the Old Testament translates vexation with the word anger. Well, angry sorrow is bitterness. This is personal. It's emotional. The more you know, the more frustrating it is to know it. Because you don't know what to do about what you know. Ignorance was bliss, in a sense. I, was, I think I was happier before I got all this wisdom. That frustration is a provoking of your spirit. It makes you irritable and annoyed that you can't know what to do about what you know is messed up. The more you know by wisdom how things ought to be, the more frustrated you are that they're not that way. The more you know what it looks like for something to be straight and plumb and flush, the more frustrating it is when you see how crooked everything is. I was hanging drywall with some brothers a couple years ago in my old 1905 house. We would measure three or four or five different times. We would cut once, we'd climb the ladder, put it up there, think we got it right, and we'd look at it and we'd be like, mm-hmm. I saw that hanging different in my mind. I mean, it would be tight at the top and then there would be two Two and a half inches of space at the bottom. What in the world? The problem is that my house is so old that nothing in it is really parallel or perpendicular in the first place. There's probably not a true 90 degree angle in my whole house. 
Well, that's how it feels to gather wisdom and knowledge of how things work in the world and then try to apply it and think, ah, it's not straight. You go to hang your carefully cut piece of drywall in the world and you realize the world isn't straight or plumb or flush. So no matter how square you cut your drywall, it doesn't fit in a slanted world. But what are you going to do? You can't change the world. What am I going to do? Replace all my rafters? Replace all the studs in my whole house? (laughs) Not going to happen. And this is not to mention all the times when it's your own fault because you mismeasured or cut on a line that you drew slanted. I remember replacing drywall one time with another friend and we only had a little tiny patch to do. We cut it at Home Depot, we brought it home, we put it up and it wasn't even close. What in the world happened? I'll tell you what happened. We brought home the junk piece and we left the right piece there that would have fit the wall. We had to go back to Home Depot to get the right piece. User error. So you look around at the world and you see it's crooked and you try to make it straight. Some of you know what this is like. Parenting a teen. Parenting a toddler. Counseling a friend. Deciding how to vote. Encouraging a friend to trust in Jesus. And and you, you can't accomplish it. You can't fix it. You can't straighten it out. And in general, Kohelet says here, the more you learn about how the world ought to be according to wisdom, the more frustrated you are to live in the world as it is. Once you have a ruler, a straight edge, oh, now you see how crooked everything is. But a ruler doesn't give you the power to straighten out the world. It's just a straight edge. That's all it is. It just tells you something's crooked because it doesn't line up. So even knowing wisdom is part of the senselessness and absurdity of life because the more wisdom you know, the more foolishness you see and the more you wish you could forget. Again, ignorance was bliss compared to having an abundance of wisdom. Wisdom is torture in this way. Now again, he's not saying, I give up on being wise. He's not saying, so I threw wisdom to the wind and it's not worth anything and now I don't pursue it anymore. I'm anti-wisdom. No, Kohelet is not anti-wisdom. He's still pro-wisdom. He's just saying, yeah, but wisdom isn't God. And there's a sense in which wisdom is torture because wisdom makes you wish you could live your life all over again. It makes you wish you could live other people's lives for them. Don't you ever run into people sometimes and you, you try to counsel them. They don't take any of your counsel. And you're like, well, I can't live your life for you, man. Like, I'm telling you what you should do. I'm telling you how the gospel applies to your situation. I'm telling you what I think would be wise. And you're doing like the complete opposite of that. So I don't, I don't know where else to go with you. And it makes you wonder, why did you even get wisdom if it's so difficult, if not impossible, to fix anything with it? And even as Christians, we're tempted to think that everything would work perfectly for us in the world if we just developed the right political theology. Then we could make America Christian again. Or if we just 
tweaked our model of cultural engagement, or if we just figured out the best model of state and local governance, or if we just fine-tuned our approach to globalism, or if we could just convince enough people to agree with us. But again, what wisdom shows you is that idealism in every form is empty. Whether it's the idealism of the right or the idealism of the left. We can't fix the fallenness and imperfections of the universe or of humanity. We cannot engineer the perfect society or the perfect family. We can't even fix what's wrong in our own hearts. All this wisdom. And yet, in a very real sense, Kohelet says we're still helpless. Which brings us back to the whole question of Ecclesiastes. What in the world? What in the world? On top of that, the internet age has produced a knowledge economy, but it leads us to information overload and a sense, and a sense of guilt, right or wrong, that makes us feel that we can never do enough about the suffering and problems and pains and injustices and sorrows of the world. And naturalism and scientism are no better. The more we know about the universe, the more questions we have about how life began and where the universe is heading. Our knowledge of the natural realm is still so incomplete, so tenuous, often remains more theoretical than concrete. And for every answer we get, we raise another two or three questions that we still can't answer. What are we supposed to do about all that we know today when so much of what we learn only adds to our frustration? And what in the world does any of this have to do with celebrating Jesus' resurrection today? Third and final point, only the risen Christ can restore reality. Only the risen Christ can restore reality. Jesus entered the world to make straight what was crooked. That's why he came the first time. He cast out demons. He healed people of their sicknesses. He made the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the blind to see. He even raised Lazarus from the dead. All of Jesus' healing miracles went to prove that he can heal our hearts of our sins. All those healing miracles, making straight what was crooked, visibly, in order to prove that he can make straight what is crooked in our hearts, invisibly. That's exactly what he said to the friends of the paralytic in Mark 2. He told the paralytic his sins were forgiven. The scribes said he was taking God's name in vain by doing that. Jesus then healed the paralytic as proof to them that he had the invisible authority to forgive sins. What's harder to say, I forgive you, your sins are forgiven, or to heal him? It's harder to heal him because now that's verifiable. So he does it. He says, look, I'm I'm doing the visible thing. I'm doing the verifiable thing to prove to you that I can do the invisible, unverifiable thing. Jesus straightened what was visibly crooked to prove his authority to straighten what is crooked in our hearts, which is our dead paralysis in our own sin, corruption, and guilt. And we can't do a thing about that until Jesus gives us new life by his Spirit. There was a crookedness in the lot of the man born blind in John 9, remember? But it was only there that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
Nobody sinned. It was that God wanted to do his works in that man through Jesus. And Thomas Boston again says, There is no crook in our lot in life, but that may be made straight. For God made it. Surely then he can mend it. He can mend it. He himself can make straight what he has made crooked, though none other can. Say not that your crook, your crookedness, has been of so long continuance that it will never mend, but put it in the hand of God, who made it, that he can mend it. And wait on him, and if it be for your good, that it should be mended, it shall be mended. For no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. You got to give that thing to him. He put it there so that you would bring it to him so that he could fix it. And Jesus entered the world with a wisdom greater than Solomon. Solomon was Israel's wisest ruler during Israel's golden age. Kohelet and Ecclesiastes is searching for wisdom in Solomon's name. And what Kohelet finds is that not even all the wisdom in the world can fix what we broke when we fell into sin. Humanity cannot make straight what God has made crooked in life because of our sins. But Jesus, Jesus is not merely human. Jesus is greater even than Solomon because Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity who took on human form. Even Solomon in all his wisdom could not straighten out anything that God had made bent. Solomon himself remained bent out of shape, you'll remember. He would eventually wander off from all the wisdom he taught. Instead of fearing the Lord, he would follow his lusts. But Jesus was the obedient son of God, the obedient king of God's kingdom that Solomon even failed to be. Jesus only ever did what he saw his father doing, only ever said what he heard his father say. This is why Jesus said to the Pharisees when they asked him again and again, something greater than Solomon is here. They asked him for a sign. He says, hey, something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon's wisdom was a sign to the queen of Sheba that God's favor was on him and all of Israel. And Jesus' wisdom was a sign to all humanity that God's favor is on him and all of his trusting people. Jesus is the wise king, the son of God, sent from God, chosen by God to straighten out all that is crooked in you and around you, for you, by saving his people, by judging all sin and making all things new. But first, Jesus would have to live and die in our place as our representative and substitute. And to do that, there had to be a crookedness even in Jesus' own life. He was not only homeless and poor, he lived under the specter of the crucifixion his entire life. Can you imagine knowing that you would die by crucifixion your entire life? You talk about a crookedness. Even though he was sinless, he was despised and rejected by men, he was cut down in his prime. He, of all people, did not deserve the treatment that he received from his own countrymen, much less from the world. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. There was an absurdity, a moral and spiritual senselessness to the way Jesus was treated and the way he died. The sinless Son of God 
nailed to a cross like a common criminal? You have got to be kidding me. What in the world? They mocked him as king of the Jews when he really was the king of the Jews. Yet he submitted to the crookedness that God ordained for him. He became a man and took the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that is why God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name above every name so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and even in hell. Why? Because he became obedient to the crookedness of God's lot for his life. That's why. That's the Savior you follow. And he's the one who understands more than anyone what it's like to have a crookedness in your lot in life. And that's why you can go to him. That is part of why he is a perfect high priest to receive and listen to your prayers and understand everything that you feel even when you don't have the words to express it. And Jesus rose from the dead as the firstborn of the restored reality. When God raised Jesus bodily from the dead, it was first of all proof that Jesus had no sin of his own for which he should die. He died in our place to suffer the penalty for our sins as our substitute. But Jesus' resurrection also proved that he is the one God has chosen to straighten out all that is crooked and to restore all reality for all those who will ever trust in him. Jesus' resurrection body, then, is the down payment that he will one day make all things new, just as his own body has been made new. And that he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth for us, that he will take away the absurdity and the senselessness of our sin and its effects on reality. It was God the Father's plan to raise Jesus from the dead that has always been the hope of release from the senselessness and sorrow of sin. Jesus' resurrection is why Paul can say in Romans 8.20, the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, not because it wanted to. It didn't do it to itself. But because of him, the God who subjected it to futility, in hope, in hope. Is this not the great irony of all reality? God subjected creation to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free by God from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Your freedom as a Christian is the model for what God's going to do for us in creating the new heavens and the earth on our behalf. He's going to create that to correspond to the new creation in you. The curse, the futility, the thorns and thistles and death of Genesis 3, 17 to 19 was nestled into the context of the promise of Genesis 3, 15. When God said to Satan himself, I will put enmity, hostility between you, Satan, and the woman, humanity, between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God would bring an end to the confederacy between humanity and Satan, which began in the rebellion of the garden 
And that promise is the hope that Paul is talking about in Romans 8.20. The curse of the ground in Genesis 3 is God subjecting creation to futility. God is the one who subjected it. But that subjection to futility, praise God, only happened in the context of the hope of the promise of restoration for creation itself. Satan's offspring would one day bruise the heel of the woman's offspring. He did that at Jesus' crucifixion. But the woman's offspring, Jesus, would crush the serpent's head. Fatal. That, too, began at the crucifixion. The fatal blow was struck there. Jesus rose. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. And now we wait. Now we wait. Creation is still groaning, Paul says. We are groaning too, even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit. But not forever. We will not groan forever. Creation itself will not groan forever. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies because in this hope we were saved. Now, we don't yet see what we hope for. Not yet. That's the nature of hope. We only hope for what we have yet to see. But if we hope for it, then we wait for it with patience until Jesus makes it a reality. Until then, the risen Christ will be sufficient for all the crookedness in our lives. He was sufficient for Paul's crookedness, was he not? There was a crookedness in the Apostle Paul's life, a thorn in his flesh. He asked three times for Jesus to take away. And the risen Christ said to him, My grace is sufficient for you. I'm not taking it away. My grace is sufficient for you. I want that thorn to stay there so that you discover how sufficient my grace is, how much my grace is sufficient for. Maybe you have a messenger of Satan in your own life, a thorn in your flesh, a frustration, something that has irritated you, something that you wish God would take away, something that you have prayed for a very long time. He would just take it away. And it gets in the way of being the person you think you should and can be. And it's humbling to you. And it is at times humiliating to you. You want Jesus to take it away. You've asked him to take it away. Jesus is leaving it there in your life, maybe in that most sensitive and tender part of your life. That part you wish you could find your life in. That part that you thought you were going to find your life in. That part of your life where it hurts the most, the part where you would have said anywhere but there, anywhere but there, You can have anything in my life, but don't take this. You can bring anything into my life, but don't bring that into my life. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient even for you to endure the crookedness in the part of your life you care about most. Come to me with that, Jesus says. Because very often... We won't come to him at all unless he puts his finger right there. You tell me, would you have come to him in the same way had he not put his finger there in your life? Mm -hmm. 
And Jesus would say, I am going to give you my grace to endure it. I'm going to use it to show you my glory and my mercy. I'm going to use it to draw you nearer to myself in a closer reliance, in a more meaningful communion and fellowship and dependence upon me. And I will use it to sharpen your hope in the day when I will return again from heaven to wipe away every tear from your eye. And I will make all things new and right for you. But what I don't want you doing is hoping in this world or thinking that this is all there is or this is as good as it gets. This is not as good as it gets. That's why he put his finger right there. He's got something better. A place where there will be no more sorrowing, no more crying, no more pain. For all these former things, all these crooked things, all these Ecclesiastes things, the risen Christ will make all those things pass away. Jesus will come a second time to make straight what God made crooked. The whole promise of the gospel is that the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, will crush the head of the serpent. God himself cursed the ground as a punishment for our sins. That is true. The created order now works against us as a judgment because we ourselves worked against God and against his law to try to be a law unto ourselves. But God also put hostility between the woman's offspring and Satan's offspring. The confederacy between sin and humanity will not last. Jesus came to crush the head of the serpent who seduced Adam and Eve away from God. Satan only bruised Jesus' heel on the cross. Jesus crushed the serpent's head in his own death and resurrection. And because he did, he earned the authority to one day remove the curse from the earth once and for all. That's coming. That's coming. Jesus' resurrection defanged death and took the venom out of the curse for all those who trust in Christ. He is the second Adam who prevailed for us where the first Adam failed us. The judgment following the one sin, Adam's, brought condemnation on all humanity represented in Adam, but the free gift of grace in Christ Jesus' life and death and resurrection, even after all the sins of humanity, brought vindication, forgiveness, justification in God's courtroom for all who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. Adam's sin brought absurdity and senselessness into the world. Jesus' obedience and death, though, restores order and sense and righteousness and peace for all those who trust in his sacrifice. So now it is true. We do not see all things submitted to Jesus. We still live with the absurdity, with the senselessness, with the confusion, with the frustration of a world working against us. But God has promised to unite all reality in and under the risen Christ. In the gospel of Jesus, crucified, dead, buried, risen bodily from the grave, God has revealed to us in Paul's words from Ephesians 1, his purpose in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He will straighten it out. He will straighten it out for us. God's orderly rational, consistent, successful, satisfying purpose is to unite all reality in and under King Jesus when he returns. Justice will be served. Corruption will end. The nations will bow in united submission to Jesus. 
And Jesus is even now before all things, and in him all things are holding together, even though we cannot see how. But in the new heavens and the new earth, reality will no longer bite. For all those who trust in Christ, we will spend all eternity discovering the wisdom of Jesus Christ, and that wisdom will not make it worse. It will make it better and better and better and better and better and better world without end. And we will look back on all the frustration of our lives from the perspective of eternity, and we will say, with mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove, and always dews of sorrow were lustered with his love. I'll bless the hand that guided, I'll bless the heart that planned, when throned where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Let's pray together. Ah, Lord Christ, we are so frustrated. We get so angry. We're so sad. The more we know, the more we wish we didn't know. The more we want to do something about everything, the less we feel like we can do about anything. And it makes us long for you to do something. Do what you have planned to do. Bring your kingdom. Send your righteousness. Send your son. Make all things new. Well, we don't have the skill. We don't have the power. We don't have the authority. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the knowledge. As much of it as we have accumulated, we don't have it to do what needs to be done to fix it, to fix the world, to fix the country, to fix the city, to fix ourselves, to fix our families, to fix our loved ones, to fix our neighbors. We can't do it. And we're sad, and we know it ought to be straight. We know it looks bent. You've given us the ruler, but you are the one who remains sovereign. So would you send your Christ? Send your Christ. Make us patient and faithful. Help us not to give up. Help us not to become fatalists. Help us not to stop trying or to stop obeying or to stop speaking or testifying to your truth in the hope of the new creation in Christ. Let us not give in to cynicism or self-pity or despair. But we do pray, would you renew our hope? Would you take all of our hope out of this world and may we place all of our hope in Christ and in the world to come? And in the meantime, we pray, would you make effective by your spirit, all of our preaching and evangelism, all of our testifying, all of our living, all of our holiness, would you make us effective in ways that we cannot make ourselves effective? Pour out your spirit on us even now. Give us a taste. Give us a taste of the goodness of the world to come and what you do in our hearts and in those around us. Let us see it, we pray.
what Jesus said. Amen.